Welcome to episode 178 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on December 4th, 2021. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. This week's episode is just slammed with new stuff to talk about, so let's just jump right into it for your weekly source of Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Before we get started this week, I just want to let you know that I published my reaction video for part two of the Linus Tech Tips video. And of course, by greatest of timings, the part three video was released today, right before the show. So I've been able to react or watch that at all. So I will be creating a reaction video for that latest video, but it will have to wait a bit so I can do this show. So speaking of which, let's do this show. Up first in the show this week, we have a giant release to talk about, and that is Blender 3.0 has been officially released. This version has been in the works for years, and it most certainly did not disappoint. In fact, this is a huge update to this open source 3D modeling software. Uh, Cycles X project, for example, has put in a ton of work for better performance. The, the rendering has improved by at least two times performance and even eight times faster in real-world scenes. Uh, more responsive viewport due to the new scheduling and display algorithms. They've also added uh, upgrades to the open image denoise tool, which is basically improving the uh, preservation of details inside of uh, different models. Uh, and there's also a new option to reduce shadow artifacts that often happen with uh, low-poly models and uh, off offset rays from like the flat surface to match where they would be for a more smoother approach. Like sometimes they previously you'd have some like weird artifacting shadows that shouldn't be there and this improves that to reduce them. Also they've done a lot of other stuff like time-based rendering limit, eliminate uh, kernel compilation weight for AMD HIP, separate presets for viewport and render sampling, improved adaptive sampling, and so much more. The list of things that they have done in this latest release is so massive that there is no way for me to actually cover everything. So, I, But I do want to cover a few more highlights because there are some huge things in this latest version of Blender. For example, they've done a lot of improvements to the geometry nodes and the text nodes. Uh, for the text nodes, for example, this brings a big milestone for the text nodes, which will allow you to create complex editable text that also supports real-time effects, which is awesome. Uh, they've also made a lot of changes to the asset browser, so you can now define folders as asset libraries and in your preferences, so you can load your favorite assets anytime from anywhere. And you also have a new pose library, which is able to manage character poses and easily switch between the two to test things out and that is also inside of the asset browser. Now Blender 3.0 also offers a brand new set of VR controller based functionality including the ability to visualize controllers inside of the scene and the ability to navigate one's way through the scene in VR using controller inputs. Just very cool. They even made a joke about their one step away from running Blender inside of Blender. So they've also made a lot of improvements to the uh, the rendering, like in the loading and saving and comp of the compressed uh, blend files. That they now it's much like magnitudes faster than it previously was, and this is thanks to the Z standard algorithm use instead of the gzip that they were using. And they've made a lot of changes to the user interface, and it looks much nicer. It improves the contrast. It just looks more modern, and it's just overall a giant 
giant update for Blender. And if you are at all interested in doing 3D modeling or animations or any of that kind of stuff, then definitely check out Blender. I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of the distro Endeavor OS. This is the Atlantis release, and it's the first version that has a code name to it. Uh, this has a lot of changes that I want to talk about. First of all, it has the 5.15.5 LTS Linux kernel, uh, Mesa 21.2.5 for the, dr the graphics drivers, and they've also decided to change the default for audio and video stream management to Pipewire, which is fantastic, because the more and more distros that are using Pipewire, the better it's going to be, and it's already pretty awesome, so I'm happy to see that. They've also made some changes to the Calamari's installer, so if you are opting to use ButterFS file system, you will, and you will now be able to use the ZSTD or Z standard transparent file system compression on both SSDs and HDDs, or SSDs and hard drives. Uh, and also they say that they are looking ahead at maybe doing some more things like adding some desktop environment options like LXDE or UKUI, along with possibly restoring the deepened desktop as an option for the installer. And they've also are considering the possibility of making a gaming edition, like a gaming focused edition. They say that it's currently being explored and that would be pretty interesting to see what that entails if they were to do that. Now, another thing about Endeavor OS is that they have this new feature called a hotfix feature, and it's been added to the ISO. So the developers can immediately push an, a, a bug fix to the ISO without creating a new one. So the hotfix feature will start automatically in the welcome app, uh, checking and then downloading fixes before Calamari's has started. This feature is available for the this current release and onwards, so it's an interesting approach to ba basically not have to rebuild the ISOs just in case something happens. They can do it where it's soon as you start the system, it checks for a hotfix, applies it, and then starts loading calamares. And that's pretty cool. Uh, for those who are not familiar, Endeavor OS is a really interesting distribution. It's kind of like the successor to Intergos, for those who are aware of what Intergos is. And it's essentially a way to install an Arch-based distribution that has uh, different options where you can choose fr from the installer different DEs and different configurations and all sorts of stuff. So it's a really interesting distribution. And if you are curious about you know trying out a Arch-based distribution but don't want to go f all the way into Arch, this might be something to check out. But also keep in mind, because it's made based on Arch, it's not for everyone. But if you want to use it to kind of like ease into learning Arch, then it could be a good way to do that as well. And they also have a really great uh, community for support and help like that. So I think that if you want to do that, then it would be a good option to do so. Up next in the show is CentOS Stream, or more specifically CentOS Stream 9 was released this week. And this is a continuous delivery distribution that is the upstream to Red Hat Enterprise Linux or RHEL. Now, a lot of people look at the continuous delivery part of it and think it's a rolling release, but it's not a rolling release. It is effectively a stable release. It just does things quicker than RHEL because it is an upstream to RHEL. And CentOS Stream is a downstream to Fedora. And Fedora has stable releases, so the whole idea that people had with CentOS Stream becoming a rolling release is just not accurate because, I mean, Fedora is a stable release distribution. They do updates uh, frequently, which is great in my opinion, but it also is considered a stable distro. So inherently, CentOS Stream is as well because it is based on Fedora. And CentOS Stream 9 specifically is based on Fedora 34. And then RHEL 9 will be based on CentOS Stream 9. So 
that's how that works. There's a much better diagram that explains how everything works. I'll have that linked in the show notes below. But basically, uh, before a package is formally introduced into CentOS Stream, it has to undergo a battery of tests, whether it's uh, automated and manual tests. There's a bunch of those kinds of things to make sure that it, it meets the standards for inclusion inside of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So it's not people who were looking at it as like a rolling release distribution. It's not that. It's much much more stable than you might you might think. In fact, it is a stable distro. Now, each major release of Stream starts from a stable release of Fedora, such as in CentOS Stream 9, that it begins with Fedora for Fedora 34, and then this will be the same code base for uh, Rail 9. And one of the cool things about the switch between uh, CentOS Linux and CentOS Stream is that you can now contribute to CentOS. Now, to be clear, people looked at CentOS Linux as being uh, a community-driven project, and it was a community-accessible project, but it wasn't really driven by the community because it was a rebuild of RHEL. In order to be a rebuild of RHEL, it has to follow everything that RHEL does. Whereas in this case, the community can now actually contribute, which is before they, they couldn't. So they had a process of, you know, months but there could be weeks or months between releases between RHEL and CentOS, and now you have access to contribute to improve CentOS as it's being developed, and that's just overall fantastic. And in fact, Fedora Apple, or the Extra Packages for Enterprise Linux, is, is a special interest group for Fedora that creates a, and maintains a high-quality set of additional packages for enterprise Linux distributions, not just uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, but also uh, Scientific Linux and others. And this is really cool because this one is based on CentOS Stream. And because CentOS Stream is so close to RHEL, the work on Apple can now start rather than waiting for RHEL to be released like it used to be. When RHEL is released, then Apple can seamlessly transition to be based on RHEL instead, which is unheard of in the enterprise world to be able to have this much in, uh, community and integration. And it's all thanks to the change with CentOS. So this is one of the reasons why I think this decision by Red Hat was a good thing, even if it was rolled out in a little chaotic way. But ultimately, I think this is great. And CentOS Stream 9 is a great example of why. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of NixOS 21.11. NixOS 21.11 is codenamed Porcupine, and it has a lot of changes, and we're going to talk about a few of them. Uh, for example, they switched from IP tables to NF tables, and for those unfamiliar, NF tables is a subsystem of the Linux kernel that provides filtering and classification of network packets. They've also made some changes for the KDE Plasma edition of NixOS, and that is it now fully works on Wayland, which is fantastic. And they also have had uh, added better support for LXD, and they've added a new service for backing up ButterFS subvolumes, uh, BTRBK, which I'm going to call Butterback. And they've also done a lot more in this latest release. Inter interestingly, though, they decided to not uh, release the latest version of their Nix package manager with this particular release, and instead are going to hold it back for a future release. For those who are not familiar with NixOS, you might be wondering, what is NixOS? And it's a pretty complicated thing, but I'll give a kind of an overview of it. Uh, they say that NixOS is designed for DevOps, developers, and tinkerers. And NixOS is an operating system where everything from the kernel, applications, system packages, and configuration files are built with their own package manager called Nix or Nix Packages. 
And this is really interesting is the way they do it is unique to their structure. Now, there are other examples that are similar, but this is a you know rather interesting way of going about it because all packages are stored in isolation from each other. And now this is kind of cool, but also can create some pain, pain points. For example, scripts containing absolute paths would have some issues and you have to go in and fix those scripts. And NixOS allows you to define a desired system in a single configuration file. What this means is that it basically makes it so that you can uh, version control and also easily port and migrate your system settings uh, between different uh, installs of NixOS very easily, which is pretty cool. Uh, Nix packages also doesn't run, uh, it runs as a non-root installation. So uh, basically what it does is that it allows you to install packages without having to be a privileged user, which is pretty interesting because it means that you can bypass any of the problems that running sudo on a script that could cause issues wouldn't have access to sudo, so it wouldn't be able to run those privileges, pr privileged permissions inside of your system. So it's an interesting approach in that sense as well. So it's, a, it's kind of effectively sandboxed there. So NixOS is a really interesting distribution. Now, keep in mind, it is not meant for everyone. They said specifically it's designed for DevOps, developers, and tinkerers. So if you're not any of those, you might not want to check it out. But if you are interested in a more, uh, you know, customizable and complex distribution, then check out NixOS in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into the DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With the app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever using a simple, intuitive interface. You simply point your app platform to the GitHub or GitLab repository of your choice and let it do all of the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, or container images, the app platform can handle the heavy lifting for all of those. And by running the app platform on your, their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly significantly lower than with other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Well, actually, better than free, because if you go to do.co slash DLN, you'll get a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, let's talk about the Open3D engine because they've had their first stable release. So this summer, there was a surprise announcement of Amazon's Lumberyard game engine being open sourced and being developed as the Open3D engine and by the newly created Open3D Foundation as a part of the Linux Foundation. And for those who are not familiar, Amazon's Lumberyard has its roots in the CryEngine with a heavily modified fork of CryEngine. So this means that the Open3D engine uh, has, while it's been only around for a few months as a project, the effort in building this engine has been going on for much, much longer. And the Open3D engine 21.11 is the first stable release of this game engine. So Open3 Foundation and companies like Adobe, uh, Amazon Web Services, Huawei, Intel, and Niantic are all involved in the creation of this. And they've actually released the source code as well as binary installers for those wanting to get started right away on game development, which is great. So, and also for those who are curious about the differences between like the Open3D engine versus Godot, 
Godot is a 2D-based game game engine, so if you want 3D functionality, Open 3D Engine makes more sense for that, and to, uh, Godot makes more sense for people who want to do 2D game engines or create 2D games. And th- what's also really cool is that because it's based on Amazon Lumberyard, which is also b- founded on the, the base of uh, CryEngine, there's a lot of power that this engine already has the ability to do. So while it seems like it's the first release... It also is a pretty solid engine for people to get started with in terms of creating open source 3D games or just 3D games in general. Now, there's also a lot of features that were added to this latest release uh, to the engine, including performance profiling, benchmarking tools, experimental terrain system, uh, script canvas integration for multiplayer networking, and so much more. If you'd like to learn more about the Open 3D engine or the Open 3D Foundation, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, the Heroic Games Launcher has hit a milestone of over 100,000 downloads of the launcher. And for those not familiar, the Epic Games Launcher is a way to basically have the Epic Games Store on Linux. So Epic Games has been a roller coaster when it comes to Linux. In some ways, they do good things like giving a mega grant to SDL that we've talked about on a previous episode of Twill. And in other ways, they are very annoying, such as not providing access to the Epic Games Store on Linux, even though the support would arguably be trivial. Uh, one of the best things about Linux is the community of developers, though, who are told they can't do something and respond with, hold my keyboard. Heroic Games Launchers is one of those projects. The Heroic Games Launcher is a native GUI Epic Games Store launcher for Linux. It also works on Windows and Mac, but, you know, I care more about the Linux part. Uh, the project has now reached a pretty big milestone. Like I said, they have got over 100,000 downloads, and I just wanted to feature it on the show to give them a round of applause because they are providing a very valuable pro- valuable project to the community. So if you use the Heroic Games Launcher and want to help fund its development, they also have a Patreon that you can join. And if you'd like to learn more about this particular project, if you've never used it and you're interested in trying out uh, stuff from the Epic Games Store on Linux, then you can check out the Heroic Games Launcher with links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, Valve has released some images for the design validation units. And the this is the last stage of the prototyping for the Steam Deck, and it looks pretty good. So there's been some changes since the EV2 version of the Steam Deck, although Valve hasn't been forthcoming as to what exactly those changes are just yet. But they are showing some previews of the packaging as well. And this is promising because it, ju- it shows just how much care is being put into this product with all the testing. Plus, the case is form-fitting and also looks pretty solid. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting my Steam Deck whenever that happens because they pushed it back and made me wait more. But still, I'm excited to get it because the Steam Deck looks awesome. And if you'd like to see the full-size uh, photos of this the design validation units, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is a really interesting initiative from Fedora for live streaming compatibility. So it's an initiative to make sure that Fedora Workstation has the best out-of-the-box experience for software and hardware used for live streaming, whether that's gaming or maybe this show or stuff like that. Uh, For those who don't know, we do this show live every Saturday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. So join us in the live chat to discuss the show and in top topics in between different segments and that sort of stuff. So again, go to dlnlive.com to join there. Uh, there's also a partnership with they're they're working on trying to create partnerships with entities entities outside of Fedora that have an interest in both upstream and downstream enablement. I am very interested in helping improve that. So I have joined the effort myself. 
And they also say that as an initial effort, they're pro- they probably want to pick a single tool in each category and figure out how to make it work well with the rest of the tools as well. And once they have a golden standard defined, then the other tools can, can work to fit that standard. Uh, so this also, real quick, this is a very early days initiative. So there's there's been talk about it in Reddit and stuff like that as, as it's already kind of happening. But this is something that they are working to start and create. So it's it's very early days. Now, I'm putting it on the show to see if, if anybody wants to get involved and help do testing or give their opinion of different hardware and that sort of stuff, then that you could, I'll have a link in the show notes below for that. Or if you'd like to learn more, I have a link in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides you with tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of that stuff. And you also can access your data across many different types of devices like your web browser, mobile apps, desktop application, or even on the command line. Plus, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption locally on your devices before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data. Unless you would like to share it, then you could join having an organizational vault with uh, business vaults or uh, family, friends and family accounts and that sort of stuff. And you could more securely share passwords because sometimes you may need to and you might want to do it in a much more secure way than sending it through a text message. Don't do that. Don't do that. Check out Bitwarden instead. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can. But I also think you want to check out their premium account because it starts as low as $1 per month. That's right. Actually, no, less than a dollar per month. You can get started. We get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with eBKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more, again, for less than $1 per month. Like, make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash dealin to get your account at Bitwarden. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Next in the show is the latest release of Ventoy. Ventoy 1.0.62 has been released. And for those who are not familiar, Ventoy is a multi-boot USB creator. And it adds uh, a new web UI plugin configuration tool for the latest release. So Ventoy is a tool to create bootable USB drives by simply uh, copying the ISO to the USB drive, which is very cool, and it has support for as many ISOs as you want. It even has support, well, provided that your drive has space for the ISOs, uh, and it even has the support to be able to do mixed Linux and Windows ISO files, which is pretty cool. Uh, Ventoy also includes many different plugins, such as the Global Control plugin, uh, Persistence Mode, uh, Auto Memdisk, Password, Theme, Image List, auto installation, and much, much more. The latest uh, Ventoy 1.0.62 has added a new web UI plugin configuration tool called Ventoy Plugs-On. I think that's what they're calling it. That makes it easy to configure its plugins, which until now required you to manually edit the Ventoy.json file to make those changes. You can now do it in this web UI much, much more easily. Uh, Ventoy also is, uh, is already basically a useful project, but it's impressive to see like how much they keep adding to the to the project to make it even better. Like it was already cool to have a multi USB boot tool that you could just drag ISOs on, and at that point, I'd be happy. And they just continue to add 
more and more value with all these different plugins and now this new web UI. So much cool stuff. If you'd like to learn more about this app, then uh, you'll find a link to Ryan, aka Dos Geek's video on Ventoy in the show notes below. And if you'd like to learn more about this particular release, I'll have links to the release notes as well in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Crossover 21.1. For those not familiar, Crossover is created by Codeweavers and is a way to run Windows apps and games on Linux. It's similar to Wine. In fact, it actually is made by the same people who work on Wine and the same people who work on Proton. We'll get to more on that in a second. But Crossover 21.1 now has added support for working with Grand Theft Auto 5 as well as GTA Online. And this support works both via the Steam client or the standalone Rockstar Games launcher. Uh, Crossover 21.1 on Linux also restores support for being able to run Microsoft Outlook 2016 and the Office 365 version. Uh, Crossover 21.1 also has various Chrome OS specific fixes and other general fixes helping the likes of like Ubisoft Connect and Quicken Software and that sort of stuff. And if you would like to support the Codeweavers team and get Crossover, it costs only $60 per year. And essentially, it's a way to kind of contribute to Wine, and uh, you, you get crossover by doing it, but you also contribute to Wine because they help make Wine, and Proton because they help make Proton. So even if you don't need crossover, you could use it as a way to contribute to both of those projects as well. So if you're interested in a way to contribute uh, monetarily to those projects, this is a way to do that. If you want to learn more about crossover or code weavers in general, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is SDL 2.0.18 has been released. We've talked about this on a previous episode of the show when Epic Games got a, gave a mega grant to uh, SDL project. And this is great because this latest release has a lot of new features and new changes. Uh, we're not going to be able to cover everything. And for those who are looking for more details, you'll find links in the show notes for that. But I wanted to cover some of the stuff because, one, it's interesting that they add this, and also, two, it's kind of funny the reaction they gave when they announced it. For those unfamiliar with SDL or the Simple Direct Media Layer, it is a cross-platform development library designed to provide low-level access to audio, keyboard, mouse, joystick, and graphics hardware via OpenGL and Direct3D. It is used by video playback software, emulators, and many, many games. In some way or another, SDL is used by most games, whether it is for input access, audio access, or something. And uh, what's new in SDL 2.0.18 is that it is now able to render triangles. Now, that might not seem very uh, important, but I wanted to cover it because it is adding a lot of uh, value to the to the uh, the SDL project, but also because there was a quote that uh, from uh, Ryan Gordon who says, we have finally re reached feature parity with the original 3DFX voodoo cards. But he also says, you have to understand, despite the gentle teasing, I've fought for years to prevent this addition. He says that uh, he once described it as the most hyped up Super Nintendo you've ever seen. So the reason is because he wants to create it, like make it to be an uh, intentionally basic of an API so that it doesn't become bloated or too complicated and that kind of thing and uh, use it with uh, integrated with other things. And this is more of a because someone else provided implementation that was so good he didn't have a reason not to include it, he did. And I thought that was pretty funny. If you want to check out the full uh, explanation of why it was added and the full story, I'll have that linked in the show notes as well as links to the latest release of SDL 2.0.18. 
Up next in the show is the latest release of the Zen Project for the Zen Hypervisor with 4.16. So the Zen Project ships version 4.16 with a focus on improved performance uh, and security as well as hardware support. Uh, so Zen Project is an open source hypervisor and it delivers on various different performance improvements with this latest release of 4.16. And they've also improved the support for the trusted platform module in working towards uh, TPM 2.0 compatibility. And this is important for supporting Windows 11 at, through the hypervisor. Uh, also, import, uh, initial support has been added for ARM performance monitor counters, as well as continued efforts on the RISC-V support and many other security improvements. If you'd like to learn more about the Zen project or this latest release, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Tesseract. 5.0 has been released. So in addition to being one of the Infinity Stones, Tesseract is an open source optical character recognition or OCR engine that supports more than 100 languages. For those unfamiliar with OCR, it's essentially for turning images of text into actual text. So this is incredibly useful for those who have a, a lot of scanned documents and want to convert them into searchable text. It's very useful for that. Uh, Tesseract 5.0 also comes with native support for Apple Silicon, API improvements for its library, better ARM support, and much more. Uh, one of the main things I want to talk about as well is a big highlight is that Tesseract 5.0 provides faster performance via fast floats to use floats instead of doubles now for the LSTM model training and text recognition. What this means is that it should result in much, much faster training and OCR performance while also using less system memory, which is always good to hear. If you'd like to learn more about the Tesseract 5.0 release, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of NeoVim. 0.6.0 has been released. Most of the work done on this release is backend related, like uh, scripting additions and improvements, API additions, bug fixes, that sort of thing. But they've also added a new flag for colon terminal for external command support, which is pretty interesting. If you'd like to learn more about uh, the latest release of NeoVim or just NeoVim in general, you'll find links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like what I do here on the show, then please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you do decide to become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics or just hang out every week after the show, as well as before the show, because we now do like a 30 minute pre-show uh, patron only thing as well, which is kind of streamed and also kind of not streamed. If, feel, feel free to, sh to join us live next week uh, on Saturday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern or, or 1800 UTC to see what I'm talking about, because we do this show live every week. It's on Saturdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. And you can check it out by going to dlnlive.com. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt at dlnstore.com. Plus, while you're there, you can check out all the other great stuff. We have hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, backpacks, and so much more at dlnstore.com. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then while you're there, you can check out the other shows that I'm on, like Destination Linux or Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network, as well as the, all the other great content on the network. And thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next time for another episode of your weekly source for Linux. Good news.